Handy History Teaching Tips, blogs in a conversational style. Handy History Teaching Tips are conversational podcasts designed to help history teachers with tips, examples and ideas about history teaching. Sally Thorne, that's me, is a head of department and senior examiner. Helen Snelson was a head of department and now trains history teachers. Between us, we have more years classroom history teaching experience than we are going to admit here. Both of us regularly write resources and present at conferences. We are proudly history specific and practical in our approach. Our hope is that this podcast will become something of a problem page for history teachers. Think of Helen and I as your agony aunts. If you're wrestling with something particularly tricky and need some help, drop us an email at handyhistoryteachingtips at gmail.com or tweet us. I'm at Mrs Thorne and Helen is at Snelson H. And we will see what we can cook up between us. Hello and welcome to today's episode of our Doing History Better series. And we're really delighted today to be inviting a guest podcaster to join us, Zara Deswani. Hi there. Hello. Hi, Hi Zara. It's nice to have you with us. Thanks ever so much for, for giving up your time. Um, I wonder, I mean, obviously I know you, but can you tell us a little bit about yourself uh, just so that for our podcasters? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you for having me as well. Um, so uh, I, my name's Zara. I'm a secondary school history teacher. I'm based in York, but I spent sort of the first 20 odd years of my life uh, growing up in a very ethnically diverse um, area of London. So kind of taking the step from there to York was a, was a bit of a culture shock, I suppose, but in the opposite way. Um, and I've been teaching in York, well, working in York now for a couple of years. So I've got a bit of experience working there but obviously kind of cross-referencing it to my own experiences growing up um are quite different so yeah quite a quite a different experience there yeah well that sounds great so but what what drew you into history in the first place then what was how was your experience of school history um I think that my experience of, of school history despite being in quite a mixed um area was it was sort of in sort of in the 90s so the curriculum was still relatively from my experience quite um uh quite through a sort of white lens um and if I'm totally honest I find it quite quite boring to start with but it was when it really when I could get something get my teeth stuck into something um was when I started to study a little bit more about sort of political history suffrage chartism uh civil rights and looking at the troubles and kind of I think when I when it started to be relevant to me was when I felt like there was an underdog that I could um I could relate to and just kind of anything that was to do with uh social uh activism or intolerance or injustice was when I started to kind of feel a pull into stuff and it married with the things that I was learning outside of school and it 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 started to you know as I said started to become a bit more relevant to me. And that sounds yeah that sounds like a, a real uh, kind of a, awakening moment I know that that <laughs> yeah. stuff is always really popular with my students as well yeah. um so you know we've we Kellen and I have had a, had a chat with you beforehand to mm-hmm. talk about what you you'd like to talk about and it, what it boils down to really is um two things which is the first thing we're going to talk about is curriculum um, yeah. and then once we've had a talk about curriculum we're going to look at next steps and kind of building forward from this point sure yeah Oh, fantastic. I'm really struck by what you said already, Zara. And I know when we were talking before, you said how how empowering that that later study had made you feel. And that um, I think you made the you know made the point that we don't know what we want to be unless we see it. Um, and the importance of history f- 
for a lot of people is that they have role models in history that they respect to mean something to them. And if they don't have those, then it, it becomes um, can become very, very dry. Mm. And I suppose it, it, it does. We, we all want to get, I think, our curriculums more representative as well. But what do you think about local history as a way in? Because we've got so many pressures on time, for example, in the curriculum. What do you think about local history as a way in to trying to have a better curriculum? Yeah, yeah, um, I think that local history is is fundamental, really. I think that, um, well, there's two sides of this, really. I think growing up in London, it's very easy to think that local history is really important because there's a wealth of it. A lot of the curriculums and the topics that are, that are existing are centred around places like London. So to that extent, I was quite fortunate where a lot of my history by proxy was local. Um, but then living in New York now and working in New York, and there's obviously also... No, no no lack of local history here but I think that local history is really, really important um, because it it tantalizes and it excites the kids you know the fact that you can go out and see some of this stuff is so vital um, and I think that it's it's you know it's not that difficult so in our school for example we're doing the industrial revolution with year eights and our key topic question is you know did York have an industrial revolution or did it kind of industrialize at a slightly slower pace which it turned out it did and focusing on that and looking at it through a different lens is really important. And I think it's just a, it's a fundamental, really, if you can. And I think the problem is if you can is also the thing, as you say, Helen, the time constraints as teachers, you know, I, th I don't think you have to kind of, uh, you know, rewrite schemes, but you could put a lesson together, I think, maybe looking at, you know, is there a lack of this history here? You know, is there is there something that doesn't exist in our local community that is to do with this? And why might that be? Um, or you can then talk about the things that are there. Um, I do think, though, that um, we talked about this before. I think that even if I know, Sally, you're working in, in Bristol and I think obviously, you know, slavery would be a huge, I would imagine, a huge part of your curriculum and rightly so. But that doesn't mean that kids in York or kids in areas that haven't got anything to do with that um, that that history shouldn't be exposed to it and so I think it's a it's a fine balance and I think it just takes a bit of a thought and um considered approach to what should be taught in those areas because of that local history and then also you know what else is important to to expose uh children to that's uh, really interesting because it's it's also fascinating isn't it how and I know we'll talk about this later keeping in touch with historical scholarship for mm. example, at the moment that the amount that's been uncovered about the sort of reach of something like slavery even into places that perhaps people haven't thought there were reaches before, which is yeah, a, yeah, we'll, we'll come into scholarship later as well. But how how as well do you think then we can some sort of curriculum for now? How can we reframe the topics we already teach? Do you think in a in an effective way? Um, I think that uh, one of the biggest sort of things that you can do is I mean it's a difficult one because I think the interest of the teacher kind of shines through a little bit here in terms of maybe what they know and I suppose we'll come we'll come to that a little bit later on when we talk about next steps but um I think that um so from my experience just sort of teaching um so even though I mean it's predominantly white fairly middle class or the school that I live in uh, <laughs> it feels like that at the moment the school <laughs> that I teach in sorry um is uh it's very mixed um, economically so even though it's very white it's very um, mixed in that sense so we do have a bit of diversity um, on that regard but um, we teach the sort of African-American civil rights spanning from Booker T Washington all the way up to the 80s and 90s so it's a, it's a broad 
history of the broad narrative and then we also do lots of other things in key stage three but from my own knowledge growing up in London and being very very exposed to subcultures of um, food and music and art um, which have had you know a kind of knock-on effect to my experiences growing up um, and how that shaped my my youth and my 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 upbringing really um, meant that I was already quite knowledgeable about um, subcultures within 50s and 60s London and so I was talking to you both about this you know the sort of Caribbean artist movement that was this burst of energy that erupted in the kind of 1920s all the way through to the, to the 80s really um, with you know people like Errol Lloyd and Stuart Hall and lots of key figures that are notably sort of West Indian Caribbean um, figureheads but it all happened alongside you know the golden era of the civil rights movement in America and I think that cross-referencing things and again making things relatable and not isolating it to just this kind of um uh political history that or you know even with the civil rights it tends to our sort of knowledge in, the, in England or you know through the press seems to be kind of solely looked at on the sort of west wind windrush generation and, and Jamaica and actually you know the Caribbean <laughs> there's a whole load of stuff you can talk about there and I think that growing up in London you see that but if you're not in London you you be forgiven for thinking that maybe it's disorientated in those sorts of things so I think in a sort of long-winded way drawing parallels between things in America and things in other countries and political movements is really important and I was fortunate enough to to see the, the hangover of that in in London um so I think reframing things that maybe don't solely and I know that some heads of departments might be sort of squirming at this but solely focus on what's taught in the exam just bringing it to life as you would do with any subject I think but maybe taking it upon yourself to look a little bit deeper and see what other narratives you could draw in um that are diverse to those topics that's that's I think so, so important and actually I mean having taught a level for so many years mm. one knows that that's going to help the students yeah. to get the as well that actually just to stick to a very na na narrow mm. and um I'm going to say textbook interpretation of the bullet point on an exam spec and not actually necessarily what the spec writers were intending is, is not actually doing A-level that well. And in fact, if you spend time building hinterland knowledge of sense of period, all, all those sorts of things, which which would come from, from knowing more socially and culturally about cross connections and cross currents and yeah. subcultures, then actually the, it's likely that the grades are going to improve as well as doing better, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's just, it's just better history, isn't it? I think that's yeah. the key thing. I'm really struck by um, your sort of brushing up against my some of my favourite uh, second order concepts here of consequences and also similarity and difference are. I think that's a really interesting way in. I think, I think that when you grow up uh, in a very, very, very mixed, um, multicultural but intercultural community um which is what i did grow up in and i was explaining you know, my parents are absolutely so obsessed with exposing us to as many cultures as possible um you see the consequences i think i referred to it earlier as a bit of a hangover and it is so you know that those movements i mean i'm sure you see it in bristol as well and you see it in, in loads of kind of cities that have had that um diaspora really um and quite intense diaspora based on you know it could be from slavery or it could just be from from any other form of migration that's happened in the last i don't know how many years but it's i think in london it's so prevalent and you know growing up in um areas of london you know you go to east london you see the bangladeshi communities and you see the 
you know, the textile, you know, the influx of textiles in that time period around the docks and all of that is is still continues today in its own kind of way. And you see glimmers of it. I mean, obviously, loads of areas have been gentrified, but there is still that soul there um, in the hearts of those communities. And I think that, you know, that's that that history has been talked about a lot of it more so in literature, you know, like Lonely Londoners um, Zadie, Zadie Smith, growing up reading Zadie Smith was such a big kind of thing because she was representing a side of London that I grew up with and that I knew. Um, and I think that that continues and that consequence. And I think that isolating history just to, let's say, for example, let's use the civil rights and the golden sort of age or call it the golden age in the 50s and 60s has a lasting effect and, and bringing that story around. Um, and I think that that was one of the things that I became quite obsessed with with history younger on was that these stories haven't finished yet. These histories haven't finished this learning about the suffrage movement, learning about the fact that I can vote, but I still can't get this. And I still have these barriers and being, a, you know, young, non-white women and all the barriers that come to it. These histories haven't finished yet, really. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a consequence. There's a reason why we're studying them. There's a reason why we're looking into them is that that progress has started but it hasn't come to an end and that's why we learn about it and you know that's why things like Black History Month are so vital if they're implemented properly is that there's, there's a reason why we're learning about these 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 studies and if you haven't experienced it yourself you could easily just teach it as it is and I don't think there's anything wrong with that you can't expect everyone to sort of um, empathize with every single lived experience ever um, but I think that they serve a purpose and they serve a role and um, and that's I think yeah consequences is, is, is a massive part of those of those histories. Mm. I'm really struck as you're talking actually just how much this is about better history as well as disciplinary concepts as well isn't it because we, we, we don't probably I think spend enough time on consequences I know it's something that's been sort of theorized about sometimes for example by, by Molly Navy as we talked in the previous podcast but it's remarkably under theorized compared to other things and um likewise similarity and difference has, has, has shifted in sort of um understanding on the national curriculum and, and and now i think there's a bit of a clearer sense that there is a disciplinary aspect to sort of similarity and difference but then there's also um, a content aspect in terms of teaching about different people mm. but this this idea of making it very explicit to students that that the past we choose to learn about is because we're interested in it it, yeah. it not be them actually but somebody has decided that this is interesting and worthwhile them studying and to actually expose on what grounds those decisions are made mm. and and who makes them and and how we make them is is really really good history as well yeah it's really powerful isn't it um getting them yeah to think about well who you know I've had a lot of conversations like that with my students you know well who mm. writes the curriculum then well I yeah. do <laughs> um yeah. so yeah um also, sorry just sorry i wonder i get this sometimes with students where they sort of ask why aren't we studying this and I, it always kind of leaves me at a bit of a god there's so much that i'm not teaching you and it, and it must be difficult as a sort of like head of department or something like that where you do have to make those difficult choices you know which one are you going to go for over which other you know which is more important and it, and it's such a difficult decision to make i imagine because you can't you know you'd love to be able to cover everything but you do have to make those choices um, yeah. as to what what is the most important um, and that can sometimes be dependent on the person that's making that decision um, yeah. yeah and I, I, I agree it's agonizing because you just mm -hmm. think there's just so many more things <laughs> and, and a, a lot of it came when I rewrote my I think I've said this before when I rewrote my curriculum you know I 
was insistent my, myself and my colleague Nick we threw out everything so there was nothing left on it yeah. um, and then we started to put stuff back and that was painful <laughs> stuff that, that I'd been teaching for like 16 years and oh wow that's yeah not the best thing for the students is yeah sure. It's a painful process, but it's a necessary one, I think. Yeah, quite cathartic as well, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And a bit a bit overwhelming because you're thinking, mm. oh gosh, you know, all of those, you know, you get to that bit in the year and you're like, oh, it's all right, I'm teaching this and I've done it so many times that I don't even mm. have to think about it. It's um yeah, and I think I think a lot of people are, are doing are going through this process at the moment. Mm. Lots of colleagues are, are kind of adding bits here and there and they're doing something, and that's really great. Uh, but we we all know that like curriculum development is is a, is always an ongoing process. You know, I never think of my key stage three program of study as finished because I feel like we change something every year. Um, yeah. So, what are your thoughts about how this how we kind of sustain ourselves and how it stays as a, a living process that we keep building on? Sure, uh, I think it's a really good question because it's it's open ended, and I by no means have all the answers to this or many really. But um, I think that. Uh, I think it's 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 interesting, isn't it? The, the two sides of the coin are sort of looking at it on a theoretical level and then actually being in schools and thinking, well, OK, I mean, given especially everything that's going on at the moment where we're absolutely on our knees, how are you expected to replan um, a topic or really have the time to do anything like that? So I think that maybe looking forward or next steps, I think that um, having, and I know that I've benefited from this, from the work that Helen did or still does, with that kind of training of bringing in, you know, absolutely amazing, absolutely incredible, um, inspiring speakers to work um, and do a sort of, you know, inspirational talk on, you know, on a training day where you've, you know, you've had a behaviour management session that you've heard about 15 times before. Mm-hmm. Um, you maybe get someone to come in to discuss a topic that you're already teaching or something new and it's focused on just diversifying it because you know younger teachers may be coming in who haven't taught the same curriculum over and over again will have those ideas and have that benefit of youth but then there's also the experience and maybe kind of having those you know open conversations and having someone come in who has it has the experience of working in school for quite a long time and knows what it's like and knows the pressures of you know rewriting and remapping all of these things but can inspire and you know I'm, I know the, the last conference that I went to that you guys were running and um, Miranda Kaufman had was talking about the workshops that she was doing about the Black Tudor's history mm. and you know not just sort of telling a teacher that they have to teach Black history or they have to learn about the civil rights movement which for some you know teachers that have maybe been teaching for a long time who's or haven't even been teaching for a long time but whose passion is maybe you know not as modern as you know 1950s or 60s America um, and having a different lens and having different perspectives on some histories that are already there um, that maybe yeah I think something like Miranda Kaufman I think what she's doing is absolutely brilliant and she's working with with teachers isn't she to, to run those workshops so something like that and kind of pushing that CPD and that knowledge-based CPD rather than just the practice of or expanding our teacher toolkit which obviously we can do but I think, um, yeah, I think schools and maybe head teachers getting getting um, something to support teacher subject knowledge, I think would be really good because it's always inspiring, isn't it? It doesn't matter how long you've been teaching for. Those sorts of things always make you kind of um, go back and think, oh my God, I'm going to rewrite everything. And obviously you never have time to, but I think that <laughs> if you have a little bit more, like more, more than that, it's good, isn't it? I think it's, I think it's good to have those things. 
Yeah, I agree. Brilliant. So supporting teacher knowledge then is really, really crucial. Um, how, gosh, where do we start? Which topic? What would you suggest to somebody that hasn't got a clue where to start? On what topic? How? Uh, in terms of maybe changing it slightly. Yeah. So if you were yeah. thinking, oh, we could get somebody in or talk to somebody. Yeah. Who do you talk I to? Think I think, I mean, I know this is probably because my, my knowledge around other stuff is potentially quite limited but I think the stuff that Miranda Coffin was doing was amazing because I think you you'd struggle to find a school that doesn't teach the Tudors uh in the country and I think that that angle I mean that angle is just so important on so many levels um because you know there's probably and I've come across in my time a history teacher that doesn't really think that there was that much of an African diaspora that took place <laughs> that affected uh, that time period. And, you know, I had a conversation with a colleague once, years, like a, a, a totally different school, but that was surprised that there was a black person cast in The Favourite, you know, the, the film The Favourite with Olivia Coleman. And I was just completely shocked that they didn't think that there were any Africans um, in England at that time. But that's that's a stigma and that's a, that's a prejudice and a an ignorance, whatever you want to call it, that I think exists amongst loads of people. And I think going as far back as the Tudors is probably a good place to start. It's not too, it's not stepping away from the curriculum too much. It's quite a nice segue. Um, and I think it would be fairly easy with the materials that are coming out um, to to change that. But I do, and I think we talk, we've talked about this before lots of times, Helen, about the kind of chicken and egg of the role of the academics with the roles of teachers and I think um, it's it's easy to expect academics to kind of pass us down the information to then uh, make it digestible for, for teenagers or children or what, whatever but I think that teachers could take maybe um, that kind of agent of change role and, and start to implement it and we don't have to wait around for people to write theses or um, published journals on these sorts of things you know we're in schools we're looking at the demographic of our kids and I think we can we can start to make those decisions on our own without waiting for governments or, or academics to make those decisions for us. Mm. No that's really really inspiring and and you're right particularly I guess with more more modern topics as well you were talking mm. powerfully earlier on about your own sort of knowledge and experiences growing up that you can now bring to bear as as teacher knowledge so um, what what would you suggest to people who perhaps haven't got sort of your experience of background bringing up, up sorry, upbringing, um, learning about all those various cultures because that was your home background? Um, yeah. how, how about people being approached to be asked? Um, I think uh, it's such an interesting one because if you were to ask my parents, let's say, who, um, so my dad's from from India but lived in England for years for about four, um, and my mum's from from the Caribbean. So I, by all standards, I'm like an absolute mongrel. <laughs> um, but that meant that I had a real, really, really good understanding of um, of those two those histories and the differences of those two histories and their relationship with Britain and what have you. So I was really privileged in that sense, um, but obviously a different type of privilege. Um, and I think that their generation would very much think that uh, to be asked in sort of, you know, 50s all the way up to the 80s, 90s even, um, to be the token black person or to be the token person, representative person, alongside receiving in other aspects of society or maybe even within that institution, racism of some form, it's quite insulting to be asked. But I, 
yes it does exist and I experience it um in all sorts of ways but I actually like being asked um what my opinion is and I I think I would urge that if you are in a in a community or in a school that has um black voices use them go to them talk to them I mean for god's sake have a conversation it's not that difficult um and and reach out because there's nothing worse than being the only non-white person in a group whose department makes a curriculum that's supposed to be diverse and they haven't asked the non-white person what they think about it and there's an irony there um so I think, you know, have those conversations, seek out stuff. There's loads of things that are now starting to, again, get the ball running um, with what's been happening in the backdrop politically. So I think, you know, utilise those those movements and utilise those charities. There's lots of places out there that are doing and are crying out for schools to get them in. Um, and, you know, if you're a teacher and you probably don't have the time to do those things, um, just have conversations with people and, you know, use the internet. It's great. <laughs> Yeah, the internet's very useful for things like this. Yeah, definitely. Thanks so much, uh, Zara, for giving up your time to come and talk through um, these issues with us. It's hopefully really helpful. It's certainly been really helpful to my thinking. I'm hoping it'll be helpful to people who are listening to this podcast. So we know you've got to let you run for a train now as well. So <laughs> better wrap up there. But, uh, no, thank, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Yeah, thanks very much.